Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. Now I'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it right now. And He humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. Can I remix the Apostle Paul with maybe a couple of his favorite verses? Here's the Apostle Paul's remix. Grumblers, like us, can be changed by grace through faith in Christ who gives us strength. And gratitude is not of ourselves, but is the gift of God. Can we talk about grumblers for a minute? Yeah? Nod your head. Okay. So you guys have given me permission now to talk about when we grumble. Now, let me say this again. Grumblers like us can be changed by grace through faith in Christ who gives us strength. And gratitude is not of ourselves, but is a gift of God. Let's talk about grumblers. What does an optimist see? The glass half what? Full, right. And what do pessimists see? A glass half empty. You got it. Now, chronic complainers see the glass like this. The glass is chipped. The water isn't cold enough. It was tap water. I asked for bottled water. Wait, there's a smudge on the rim. That means this glass wasn't cleaned properly in the church kitchen. And Now I'll probably end up with the flu or the Zika virus. Why does these things always happen to me? See how it works? Some people complain, complain, complain. Try to offer them a solution. And they just say, yes, but they don't want a solution. They want sympathy. They're not looking for help. They're just looking for someone to dump on, to vent their grumblings. These hardcore complainers are called, by psychologists, help-rejecting complainers. Now, there's a few steps that we can use to try to help a help-rejecting complainer. Sometimes we should still try to help them. First is really listen to them and show some sympathy. Try to understand their problem. That's easy enough. But if they still keep complaining, the second step is to try to redirect their complaints another direction. For example, if they're complaining about a specific person, say, it sounds like you and -and so-and-so have something you need to talk about. If they're complaining about some situation, you could say, that's terrible. I don't know how you deal with it. You must have a gift of extra patience and strength. And if they're still complaining after that, then you could try judo therapy, you know, turning the negative energy into something positive. Wow, it seems like you have a lot of bad things happening. Is there anything going well for you right now? And if they still complain after that, then we could try the third tactic, which is ask them, may I share my opinion with you and try to offer some godly advice? Pray that they would accept it. Well, let's see how God handled the people of Israel when they were help-rejecting complainers. Or, more specifically here in this text, miracle-forgetting complainers. Let's watch God's grace in the end of Exodus 15 and all of chapter 16, and then just the beginning of chapter 17. Let's watch God's grace as it rains down upon His grumbling people. Watch how grumblers like us can be changed by grace through faith in Christ who gives us strength and 
realize that gratitude is not of ourselves. Even it is a gift of God. Now, Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 begins, In the wilderness travels, after the Israelites cross the Red Sea, exiting their Egyptian slavery, and the wilderness wanderings continue for 40 years until they come to the Jordan River, about to enter the Promised Land. 40 years later. Doesn't that give new meaning to the phrase, Are we there yet? Okay, so in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 through 27, we read, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They were in three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule. That's a statute, not a statue. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Only one month after their dramatic deliverance from being surrounded by walls of water hundreds of feet high at the Red Sea to now having no drop of drinkable water in sight, Israel is back at it, grumbling again, only three days after the Red Sea crossing. When they come to this place called Mara, where the waters were bitter, and by the tree of life the waters became sweet, we shouldn't judge them too harshly. I mean, they were in the desert... For real. They were crying out for help because their pain was real. They would have really been thirsty, truly hungry here at Mara. Mara, bitter water. It reminds me of the same word used in chapter 1 of Exodus. The Israelites were working with a bitter labor for the Egyptian taskmasters in that first chapter. It reminds me of when God delivered his people from that bitter slavery by doing what? Things like changing the water into blood, bringing death to the Nile River and the frogs and fish and the people eventually. And here we have God doing the opposite. Through the waters, bringing life. Through the bitterness, bringing sweetness, bringing grace. And even making a promise in verse 26, not a single one of those plagues that I just reminded you of in this miracle, the plagues upon Egypt will be on you. None of those diseases, none of the curses, none of the plagues, if you keep my commandment, Trusting and obeying. Now, if you grumble, we'll see. Turn your backs on me. I'm not going to send you back to Egypt, but I will send the plagues of Egypt to you. And so here they are. Don't hold them too uh, guilty for grumbling when there really was no water to drink. I mean, three days journeying, and there's no water, and they're in the desert. Wouldn't you ask what's going on too? Wouldn't you possibly complain, God, are you going to take care of us? They begin grumbling and complaining. But, but you have to ask, how's their attitude? How's the tone of their voice in this text? And, and what's the tone of God in response? Well, obviously, there's not much faith in their tone. There's not much reverence, not much fear of Yahweh. It's grumbling, murmuring, complaining. But what's God's response? What's His tone? He doesn't slap them down or backhand them. He opens His hand. He provides water to drink, sweet water even, to satisfy them and to teach them something about himself. God's grace, you could say, ambushes 
They're grumbling. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, here's God's gracious, flowing, clean, sweet, refreshing water into their mouths and their animal troughs and their canteens, whatever wine, uh, animal skins they were carrying for, for drink. And, and how does God do it? God shows Moses a log and says, throw it in the water. Now, the word show there is the same root word from the word Torah, the Torah meaning the law or the instruction. So Moses is instructed in a very specific way. This isn't just any throwaway word. This is a special word. God instructed Moses. He revealed to Moses where this log would be and the fact that it would actually not just turn the waters sweet, but literally the word is to heal the waters. To heal the waters. Now, this reminds me of sassafras. Do you guys know about sassafras? Anybody in here? Sassafras tree, sassafras root. If you know about sassafras, I'm from Louisiana, and we know about sassafras down there, because sassafras is a root that you can boil down or grind up, and it's actually sassafras root is what was the original ingredient in root beer. Did you know that? They don't do it anymore because of health concerns, because people don't handle it properly in large batches, but some people still make root beer out of it. And it's also ground up and put in gumbo filet, that little powder that I put in your gumbo when you come to my house, and we share that Creole delicacy. It's used in a lot of spices, and it's also used medicinally for medicine to heal various ailments. Sassafras makes a very sassy tea. Have you ever had sassafras tea? Really good. Well, that's what I think of. It's like a root or a branch or a log made with something sweet like that, and Moses throws it in, and a lot of people say, hey, yeah, it's just a natural thing that happened. The water was bitter. This somehow sweetened it a bit. No, no. I mean, God is definitely using nature. He's using the wood or the log, but it's a miracle. The vast quantities of water that would have to be healed, not just sweetened, to feed the to, to satisfy the people and their animals. You know, there's about perhaps 2 million Israelites some people estimate, in this desert condition. This is a miracle. God's using nature in this Garden of Eden-like way, this creation-like way. This is the tree of life. He's saying, give the people life from this piece of wood. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? A piece of wood that brings life to dying people by a man hanging on it. This is Yahweh's grace to the people The good shepherd of Psalm 23 is is right here in this text. Leading them to living waters. Then in the last verse of this section, to 12 springs of fresh springs of life. life Life-sustaining water in this place called Elim. Fountains of water just bubbling out for them. And, And 70 palm trees with coconuts and shade and whatever else. It signifies abundance and prosperity that would await them in the promised land as they journey towards it. What's the point of this little story? Verse 26 tells us, Yahweh's revealing something about himself. God is healer. Yahweh Rapha, the healer. Who needs some healing in here today? Who's hurting and bitter today? Who feels like death is in the water that you drink, the air that you breathe? Who feels like nothing can go right? And you know God did some miracles in the past, but what about today? God, it's been three days, I don't have anything to drink. I'm literally dying in the desert Who needs to know that God is healer? Yahweh, Rapha. I'm not going to pretend that the water is not bitter in your life. Yes, the wilderness is hard. But God says, I will give you water in the wilderness. I will give you something sweet to keep you going in the bitter days on the journey to the promised land. Don't be a help-rejecting complainer. God's saying, I'm a healer. 
You can have me or you can turn your back on me, but I am a healer. I'm revealing myself to you. I'm offering you grace like rain flowing from these springs of life that come through Christ. Don't reject my help. Don't just complain when I've plainly offered you the help and the grace you need. The next story from chapter 16 is the story of grace falling like rain upon the people or birds and bread literally falling like rain. So back on the road again in the wilderness, journeying towards the promised land, just a few weeks later, after the end of chapter 15, the Israelites are somewhere between the springs of living water at Elim and Mount Sinai, where the law and the covenant would be given through Moses. And here they are in this place, which verse 1 tells us is called the wilderness of sin. No relation to sin, okay? It's just the name of the place. It's from the same word that we get Sinai, you know, sin, Sinai, pronounced almost the same in the Hebrew. Not the same as the wilderness of Zin, which is another one further south from here. But anyway, they're in this place called the wilderness of sin. And they begin sinning. They begin grumbling and complaining and moaning again. And this time, it's because they have no food. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. When we sat by those meat pots and ate bread to the full for... You have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Hmm. Okay. That's not what I remember reading earlier. They're accusing God of liberating them from slavery only to starve them in the desert. Sounds like some of my kids when they were two or three years old and they were, the, the fridge was stocked with food. You can't even close the fridge. It's so full. The, the cupboards and shelves are full of snacks and goodies. They know that we've given them three square meals a day for the entire time we've known them. And on top of that, fruit snacks and go-go squeezes in between every meal. And here they are, just because we're maybe 20 minutes late on a meal, they're saying, I'm starving and you don't love me and we have nothing to eat. Amen. <laughs> now that's what it sounds like right here. Sorry, Michaela and Ellie, to call you out like that, but we're all like that. We're all like the Israelites. And you have to ask, what? You don't love me? You don't care about me? You don't know my situation? Israel says, remember when? Remember how good it was back in slavery? Remember those slave days we used to spend just passing the days, leaning on that pot of meat, that big cauldron full of meat, just sawing off large chunks of roast beef, just you know, eating the ribs, just dripping with barbecue, getting all sloppy. Remember that big turkey fryer that we had in the backyard in Egypt and how we didn't do anything but just sit around and eat, getting fat all day, living our lives out, retiring early and living long, and here you are dragging us out of that beautiful slavery into this desert just to simply starve a quick, painful, hunger, stomach-gnawing death. Wow. That's not how I remember. Verse 4, Yahweh said to Moses, Behold. That means, watch out. That means, get the belt. That's what my dad used to say, at least, right, Matt? Matt and I were talking about that the other day. Get the, watch out. They said, what did you say to me? Behold, here it comes. I'm about to what? Smack you down into this desert sand. No, no. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. <laughs> what? Are you kidding? God, why would you do Like, don't do that to them. Smack them down. That's what I want. No, no. Why would God rain bread from heaven for them? And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Wow. 
He doesn't crush them. He doesn't strike them down for ingratitude and immaturity and grumbling and complaining. This is, by the way, the God of the Old Testament, who, by the way, is the same God of the New Testament, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is grace in the Old Testament that surprises us. This is shocking grace. This is an ambush of grace once again. This is God and how he treats his people. Ridiculous, stubborn complaints answered with a shower of bread from heaven. Literally raining down food all around the camp. First, verse 13. Quail, flock in, covering the camp like a blanket. In evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. So in the evening, you've got your protein. In the morning, you've got your carbs. In the, in the evening, the quail. In the morning, verse 14, when the dew had evaporated, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Wow, I remember in Egypt, God sent down hail from heaven. He, he showered hail upon the Egyptians and devoured, destroyed their livestock and their crops. Now he's showering down bread for his people who were just as sinful, complaining, not trusting him. A blanket of birds, basketfuls. If you take the measurements here that are given in this text, they says take an omer for each person in your house. An omer was like half a gallon. And by the way, an omer was only used here in the, in the Bible. After this, we, we start hearing them measure things with ephahs. And it explains to us later that an ephah was so much of an omer. But they didn't use the word omer anymore. This is a very old text. It's a very old recording. And they had to explain, oh, here's what an omer is. Because if you're reading this a little bit later, you wouldn't have understood what that was. You know? And so here they are with about half a gallon of the stuff that I would imagine looks like potato flakes. You know, dehydrated potato flakes. Some of you guys have never eaten those before. But you know, you've got to thicken some things up or sometimes you're in a bind or you just want to cook for a lot of people. You don't have time to peel all those potatoes. You just make potato flakes. You know how that is? That's kind of what this might have looked like. But it was sweet. It tasted like honey. It's called the bread of heaven here in chapter 16. You can read a further description of it in verses 33 through 36. It was unusual. It was sweet. It was so unusual. They never seen anything like this. They simply just said, what is this in verse 15? When the people saw it, they said, Man who? What is this? And that kind of sounds like manna, and that's what they eventually called it in verse 31. Manna! Hey, can you pass the what is it? I'm really hungry. Put some more butter on the what is it. Whatchamacallit. You know, whatever the stuff is, it's good. I'll collect half a gallon per day, but God gave specific instructions, guidelines to the grace, you could say, the grace comes with this guideline because God is testing his people in verse 4, chapter 16, verse 4. I'm going to rain this stuff down, but I'm testing them to see whether they'll walk in my law or not. So here's the first instruction. Verse 5. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, the gathering this manna, it will be twice as much as they gather daily so that on the seventh day, the Sabbath, you can have extra and you don't have to go out there and work and gather. So six days, you're going to gather just what you need. On the seventh day, you don't have to gather a thing. But two specifics. Number one, don't gather more than you need on those six days because guess what's going to happen? It's going to rot. It's going to spoil. Maggots or something else would be in it. Kind of like, um, you know, I don't know, it's a very short shelf life, very short expiration day. One day is all you got. But there's going to be more the next day. It's daily bread, right? Give us today our daily bread, right? Here it is. God says, trust me. I'll take care of you. I'm not going to give you tomorrow's bread unless it's Friday night and the Sabbath, the Saturday would be the next day. I mean, don't you want from God sometimes like Tuesday's bread and Wednesday's bread when he's like, hey, I'm going to give you Sunday's bread today. 
give you what you need. Trust me. I'll provide for you tomorrow just like I did today. But on the seventh day, the specific instructions don't go out and gather this manna. In verse 16, don't be greedy and gather too much. But then on that seventh day, verse 5 and verse 24 through 30, 30 tell us the Sabbath is going to be instituted. Remember creation, God worked on the seventh day he rested after six days of labor. That's the pattern. Well, now he's beginning to make it clear, make it plain, command a day of rest. Before the law was even given, he's saying, take this law. Before Sinai, before Moses received the Ten Commandments, this is an important law. One of the first laws given to these new people. Work six days and take a break on the seventh. Now, I've preached on this recently. I'm going to preach on it again. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the Sabbath. But don't go to sleep on me when I say this, guys. God is saying, listen, I'm not going to give you manna on the Sabbath day. I'm not going to give you the resources you need on that seventh day. I'm going to give you what you need the previous days. Work hard, gather what you need, and on that seventh day, you go out to gather, there's nothing available. There's nothing what you'll need there. God's not going to work on that day. He's not going to provide on that day. And it will be no surprise when you go out there and find nothing on the Sabbath. But that doesn't matter because some of the people, stubborn as they were, they broke both of these laws they went out there and they gathered too much and they hoarded it and it started stinking and rotting and Moses got angry. It says he got irate. He's like, what are you doing? And then they broke the second law. They went out and gathered on the Sabbath, but there was nothing there. It's like, are you kidding me? Can't you just listen to it? I mean, he's raining grace upon us. Trust him. And then in verse 10, verse 10, God provides one more thing, his presence. He's not just providing bread and meats. He's providing his presence. Verse 10 as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people about their grumbling, they looked toward the wilderness. I mean, imagine the song we sang, the video we watched, the desert, the wilderness, the rocks, the barrenness out there. As you gaze off into the wilderness, you see what? The cloud. Not a cloud, but the cloud. The one that's been leading them through the wilderness. The cloud of smoke and fire. Now here's the cloud. And behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. They're grumbling, they're complaining. Suddenly, they have meat, they have bread, and they have, best of all, Yahweh himself still with them. Glorious. This is the first appearance of this phrase in the whole Bible. The glory of Yahweh. This is a very important passage. The glory of Yahweh first revealed in this way to his people. Right on the heels of their grumbling. And they'll grumble just after they see his appearance in the cloud. Just glory charged. Amazing. The essence of who God is is in this cloud. And who is he? He's a provider. He's a healer. And now we see he's a provider. God, the provider. Yahweh, Yireh, God provides. He's present with his people. He gives us the bread of life. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says it like this. If God would not spare his own son... And how much more along with him will he give us all things? I mean, if God would not spare the Passover lamb, if God would not refuse to part the Red Sea, if God would not rain down bread from heaven and quail from heaven and water, bitter turns sweet, don't you think that we can eventually get the picture that God is with us and will provide what we need? That's the point, that God is a provider, an ever-present provider. 
later in verses 34 through 35, we see that then Aaron and Moses were instructed to take some of that manna, which rots so quickly, and put some in a little jar and put it in the Ark of the Testimony, which is the Ark of the Covenant, later. So this is kind of a, like a reading back into the text. And it was probably written much later because then it talks about how the people ate manna for 40 years and then they entered the promised land and the manna stopped. Well, Moses died before that point happened. So this is like now an insertion that was probably written much later. And it says, check it out. God wants you to remind yourselves of the manna, the provision in that place in the temple one day when the Ark of the Covenant reminds you that he's always with you in his glorious presence. And it's not going to rot somehow. I don't know, like holy Tupperware or something. I don't get how the manna didn't rot this time, or like how they sealed it back in those days, but the manna didn't rot for 40 years in that little jar in the Ark of the Covenant. God is a provider. God is good. He's gracious to complaining, bitter people. It's grace that saves us, and it's grace that saves us from complaining. Now, the third story is chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. The miracle of the water from the rock, or you could say the mineral water from the rock. This place is Rephidim. It's the last stop on the way to Sinai where they'd get the law and the covenant. It's kind of like the sign that warns you as you're on your road trip down the interstate, uh, no more rest areas for 100 miles. So you better go to the bathroom now, get something to drink now, because this is it. So it's like this is the last place you're stopping before the law is going to be given to you on Mount Sinai. Verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses. Once again, because verse 1 says there was no water for the people to drink. Oh, it sounds very familiar. We've been here before just a couple weeks earlier. But now they're not just complaining, they're quarreling. Quarreling is worse than complaining. Quarreling is fighting, arguing. It's rude. It's immature. It's stronger and nastier than just saying, what's going on? We don't have any water. Help! We're in trouble. This is saying, you low-down leader, Moses, you two-timing priest, Aaron, you implicating and even then later saying, murderer, God, you brought us out here to kill us. God, you're a murderer. That's what they're doing. That's what they're saying, literally. That's what they say. You brought us out here to, to starve, to die of thirst once again. Quarreling. Now, the problem here isn't just some generic form of, like, spiritual lack of faith. I mean, that would cover it. We could move on. If I just said, hey, they had a lack of faith. Oh, of course, lack of faith. Very generic, wouldn't hit home. What this is, though, it's a very specific problem. Their God is their stomach. That's the problem. Their pride and their self-focused craving for something they can put in their mouth and eat or drink, that's the problem. They, they want to satisfy their hormones or their body more than they're willing to follow God and trust Him and ask Him for help in a more reverent way. Give me what I want now, God. And this place later was called Meribah because of the grumbling. Grumbling, Meribah, grumbling. So kind of as a title over the Israelites complaining and uh, wilderness rebellion, you've got Massa where the, the water was bitter and you've got Meribah in the story here. And the Bible tells us in places like Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, don't be like the Israelites who hardened their hearts at Massa and Meribah. So the problem here is not just a general lack of faith, it's hardness of heart. But what does God do? He takes a hard thing, a rock, and he tells Moses, strike it with your staff. 
and I'm going to flow gracious waters once again to these hard-hearted people. Take that staff that you used to strike the waters of the Nile and turn them to blood. Take that staff that parted the Red Sea and once again through the hard place, waters of life will flow and my people will have a way once again to live, to be my people. You can gossip, you can grumble, you can talk bad about God, but what is he going to do? He's still going to bless his people so far. Now God's patience though, as you continue reading the story, we're not going to read anything else of the story, but if you just think ahead, or as we'll read later, you know that Exodus is a very grace-filled book. Now there is some discipline for sure that happens to the people when they get out of, out of hand, but there's a lot of grace in Exodus. You get into Numbers, oh, <laughs> there's a lot of discipline in Numbers. The book of Numbers literally means in the wilderness, when they keep traveling, like year two, three, all the way to year 40, there's a lot of discipline, a lot of pain. There's a lot of purging, refining by fire. Actually, the entire Exodus generation of adults, you know, died out in the desert. God disciplined his people. And only the younger generation entered the promised land at the end of 40 years. So that tells me that God's patience, like manna, I guess, has an expiration date. You think you can test God for it? I mean, he says, you're testing Yahweh. I mean, there's a very clear command. Jesus picks up on it in the temptation. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. comes right out of this passage. You think you can keep testing God? I mean, he's testing you, son. He's testing you, girl. You don't test him. Oh, he already passed the test. Like, he already became God. Eternity passed. Like, you don't get to test God. He gets to test you, to mature you, to grow you and develop you. He's always good and always perfect. He never changes. But you need some help. And so he's going to test you. And here we are, seeing the people testing God, failing his test, and then testing him over and over again. Wow. We, we need to learn some things by the test. Okay, here's a couple closing points. Some things about grace you need to know for the, the final exam, okay? Don't go to sleep now, because you, you guys are going to stay up all night and study for your exams. Stay awake now, it's the end of the sermon, okay? Give me a few more minutes. First, grace teaches us that grace teaches us, okay? Grace teaches us that grace teaches us, okay? Grace is a teaching gift of God. It, grace teaches us to do what? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Oh, that's an interesting thing that grace taught me, that I can both fear and not fear at the same time. That I should fear God and not put Him to the test and not grumble and complain and quarrel. But then He's teaching me to hope and to trust and to relax and to enjoy His gifts. Grace teaches me something when I look at the Exodus generation of adults who died off in the desert, Whoa, God's serious. He takes his people that he loved and he delivered them with signs and wonders out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, fed them, clothed them, gave them drank, all this showering grace from heaven, and then he kills them in the desert? Yes, that's what he did. Grace teaches us to fear the Lord. Don't play with him. Fear. But it also teaches us that the younger generation got into the promised land. It doesn't matter what your mama or your daddy or your grandmother did, good or bad, you are responsible before the Lord. And you have hope today because you're not them and you're not stuck in the cycle. The, the chains can be broken from whatever family, generational sins or cycles or addictions. That can be broken right now. And you have hope that as a young person or a person that still has oxygen in your lungs, even if you're old, you can make it into the promised land. You can enter into God's promise 
There's hope for it. Grace teaches us to fear, and grace, our fears, relieve. I hope that you will not turn your back on God today and say, I'm done with you. You taught me enough. I, I don't want to know anything else about you. I hope that you will be taught today by grace to trust the Lord. Then grace tests us. Okay? So know this for the test. Grace tests us. It teaches us and it tests us. Once you learn some things, you're going to be put to the test. Hello? 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 Can you hear me? Can you hear me? You're going to be put to the test, right, Horace? You learned some things over the years, and God's required some things of us, right? Testing us is the point of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This is the point of this passage. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says this, God humbled you, and he let you hunger. When your stomach started growling, he was testing you. That was God doing that to you. And then he fed you with manna, which you did not know. You're like, what is this? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. It's not just about bread. It's not just about money. And we want to just focus on what this world has to offer. Food, money, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, children, academic success, street reputation, whatever you're going for in this world, whatever is your ambition... Don't live by that. You're going to be put to the test one day, and if that's all you've got, you're going to fail the test. You're going to be left naked, pitiable, poor, and blind, like Revelation said. You need to be clothed and fed by God in Christ. Every word that comes from His mouth is our life-giving food and drink. And then we see that that's exactly what grace does. It feeds us. It feeds us. Grace feeds us. Jesus quotes this verse in The Temptation in the desert, that every word from the mouth of God is what's sustaining me in my 40-day wilderness fasting, reflecting the 40-year wilderness wandering of the people. He says, I'm going to be sustained not by Satan's temptation to turn the bread and to turn the stone into bread. I'm going to be sustained by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm going to be sustained by meditating on Deuteronomy 8 and not just thinking about it, but eating it, feeding on it. Spiritual food, supernatural food. We need bread to live, of course. But we need more than bread, supernatural food, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And that's the next thing that grace teaches us, is that Jesus is grace. Jesus is our bread. The people in John 6 demand, complaining, grumbling, just like the people of Israel. Here they are again, a thousand years later, grumbling, complaining to Jesus Give us a sign. We want to see some tricks. Give us a sign like Moses gave the people in the desert. He gave them manna. Now what are you going to do, Jesus? Jesus says this in John 6, 27. Do not, do not work for food that spoils, like manna, but for food that endures to eternal life. You can't live by bread and money and status and everything else this world has. Work for the food that endures. Verse 33 of John 6, the bread of God is he who came down from heaven and gives his life to the world. That's what you need. You need him who gave you his life so that you can have life. Verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
The point is this. We are going to hunger. We are going to thirst. But will we complain? Did you know that there's a righteous way to complain and a rebellious way to complain? The righteous way to complain would be something like Psalm 142, verse 1 and 2. With my voice, that when I'm hungry, when I'm thirsty, when I'm needy, when I'm hurting, when I'm angry, when I'm helpless, when I'm alone... Here's what the psalmist does. With my voice, I cry to Yahweh. With my voice, I plead for mercy to Yahweh. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. That's fine. That's good. Pour out your complaint. Righteous complaint. Say, help me, Lord. Show me mercy. I need you more than ever before. I can't do this anymore alone. That's what he loves to hear. That's what he loves to help. But then there's the rebellious complaining. It's not righteous. How could you let me down like this? I prefer Egypt to this any day. Murderer, how could you do this to me? You took away everything I love. You didn't give me what I wanted. Complain, complain, complain. Rebellious, unrighteous, grumbling, and gossiping about God. And he says, don't harden your heart like that. He says, if you want true food, then he says, when you hunger and when you thirst, this is the only thing that will satisfy you. Believe in me and you'll never thirst. Oh, you'll thirst, but you'll come to him in a righteous complaint, in a righteous need, and he will feed you and satisfy you. And then Jesus says, as the people continue grumbling in John 6, and some even stop following him, they're like, we're done with you. We're going to stop following the glory cloud. We're going to stop following the Messiah. We don't have time for this anymore. You're not acting fast enough. You're not giving us what we want, so we're done with you. You're too confusing. Your words don't make sense to us. They're hard words telling me to eat and drink of your body and blood. What are you talking about? I don't need that, he says. They say. And so Jesus continues, though, just like God in the desert. In the very next chapter, John 7, 37, he says, If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, will have springs of living water flowing from within him. Just come to me. He says, eat and drink. You will live. So today as we close, I hope that we will learn the lesson, grumblers that we are, <laughs> that grumblers are saved by grace through faith in a Christ who is our strength. And that even gratitude, gratitude is a gift of God. We shouldn't boast for whatever we have and whatever we receive. And let's say like Paul, who is facing people who he called grumblers and complainers and said in Philippians 3, their, their God is their stomach. Said to them, here's how I live, Philippians 4. The grace of God has led me to live like this. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, to know what is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Let's pray. Father, as we close our eyes or turn them to heaven, remind us that we cannot keep our eyes fixed only on the desert and the wilderness. We can't keep our eyes fixed on the poverty, the pain, the heartache, the funerals, the depression, the failure. 
It's here. It's real. It hurts. But if we only see that, God, we will certainly not only grumble and complain, but we will lose what is most needed, the life that Jesus himself gives. Help us, God, not to just fix our eyes on the things we see, but the things we can't see. Not just to keep our eyes fixed on where we are, but to see where we're going, where you're leading us to, to the promise, to our true home, which is not this world as it currently is. God, we see the desert. It's, it's hard. It's, we, we thirst. We hunger. We have real problems, but the promise is before us. Grace falls like rain. And I know that you reign on the righteous and the unrighteous, God, and the, the true question, the true test that we face today is, will we grumble before your grace or will we be grateful and live? Jesus, you promise us hidden manna in Revelation chapter 2 for the overcomers. Overcomers aren't perfect people. They're not super saints. They are people that simply survive and make it through by faith, by grace. We Long for that hidden manna that you will serve us in heaven. The manna which will never spoil. The bread of life which is Jesus. Which will always satisfy us. God, we pray once again for those of us that are hurting. Even for Martel, our dear brother. That you would give all of us, especially him and his family, grace to see even in the bitter waters of life. Even if it's just drops of sweet water upon their lips and upon their souls. God, give us a taste that you were good when life was hard. Give us a taste and a reminder, even today in the communion supper, to know you, to fellowship with you in your sufferings, and to have unity with you in your resurrection life, so that we truly might do all things through Christ, who gives us strength with joy and with gratitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.